Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Aspen recently released practice recommendations in a paper entitled Blenderized Tube Feedings, Practice Recommendations from the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. That paper is published in the December 2023 issue of NCP. Joining me today is the first author of the paper, Lisa Epp. Lisa is a registered dietitian with the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, Metabolism, and Nutrition at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Lisa is a well-known expert on blenderized tube feeding. So thank you, Lisa, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before we start our discussion, Lisa, do you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share? Yes, I am on the Speakers Bureau for Nestle, as well as a general consultant for Avenos. Thank you, Lisa. So I think readers um, are going to find this paper to be very helpful. But when we start our discussion, I really want first to address the reason uh, or the need to have these practice recommendations. I certainly see that there is a rise in the popularity and use of blenderized two feedings. So to what do you attribute the shift in enteral formula preference? Yeah, I think one of the first things really when we talk about the reason for this paper is we wanted the experts in the field to be providing information on this topic instead of um, what we were seeing happening over the past 10 years where patients and caregivers were really wanting to be part of the process in decision making with their healthcare and nutrition was no exception. So they were wanting to choose ingredients and choose formulas, and without some clinical guidelines or clinical recommendations, they were maybe relying on people outside our our profession for those recommendations. Um, And so I think it's really important that we have those where they can get as much evidence-based guidelines and recommendations as we can. So I'd like to kind of delve in a little bit more about these practice guidelines. So Lisa, can you kind of tell us how they were developed and how many of these practice recommendations you guys came up with and what's included in this document that's published uh, now in NCP? Yes. So this is definitely a labor of love and many of us on the group We had a multidisciplinary group. We met really for a year and I had the privilege of working with people who were very much on task and kind of helped out and pulled their weight. So we were able to get a lot done. So we really started with developing just questions amongst our group. You know, what are the main questions that patients are asking us and what are other clinicians asking us? So we developed these questions And based on those questions, we decided to do a literature review from 2016 forward. The reason why we chose kind of a newer date range is because we know that in the past, maybe 20, 30, even 50 years ago, blenderized tube feeding was common, but we really wanted to look at the literature related to what we're considering a modern day blenderized tube feeding, which is why we kind of limited our literature review. That resulted in 79 articles that us authors reviewed, and then we developed approximately 20 practice recommendations based on these articles and the clinical questions that we felt like people had. And we definitely could have done more. So putting your clinician hat on here, Lisa, if a patient or a caregiver comes to you and says that they want to use a homemade blenderized formula, what are the questions you're going to be asking that patient? to ascertain if blenderized tube feedings are are appropriate for that patient. 
I think the very first thing that I would ask and I would encourage everyone to ask is, are you able to tolerate your enteral formula within a two hour time frame? Knowing that blenderized tube feeding is food and that really it can't be at room temperature for more than two hours and really one hour if it's hotter than 90 degrees Fahrenheit, that's really the first barrier to tackle. If someone's on 24 hour feeding with a pump, um, that might not be the best option. So the second thing that we look at is do they have access to their stomach? Can they do some type of bolus feeding? Given that for J-tubes, you know, pumps are usually needed, the home prepared blenderized feeding may not be the best option. And that's where maybe some of the newer commercial options may be a better option. So tell us a little bit about how a dietitian or another nutrition support clinician is going to determine the ingredients for blenderized tube feeding formula. And should patients be given more than one recipe to allow for variety and adequacy of nutrients? So there are many ways to develop recipes for blenderized tube feeding. And really one of the reasons people are interested in this is because they want to have their nutrition regimen really made based on their own personal needs and lifestyle preferences. So therefore in the practice recommendations, we give a handful of ways to develop recipes. But our preference is really a great way to start is really with USDA MyPlate or the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, where it really breaks down, you know, starches, fruits, vegetables, proteins, fats for all healthy people in the United States. And then developing recipes using those foods, which can be analyzed against the kind of age requirements, and then deciding, okay, do I need to add vitamin and mineral supplements? Do I need to add electrolytes or other modulars to meet nutrition needs? If we vary the recipe from day to day, we're going to be less likely to need to add some of those things versus using one recipe every single day. We might be more apt to have to add a vitamin and mineral supplement or a modular, for example. But really using a variety of recipes is what most patients and caregivers want because it might be one of the things that led them to wanting to do the blenderized feeding in the first place is getting a wide variety of healthy foods in their diet. So Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about what equipment is needed if a patient or a caregiver wants to use blenderized tube feeding at home? Certainly they need a blender, but what type of a blender would they need and are there any other pieces of equipment they should have? Yeah, great question. I think the blender question comes up a lot. And I think there's a perception that you have to have a very expensive industrial strength blender to do blenderized tube feeding at home. And that is helpful, but it's not required. So you'll find more information on this in the recommendations, but really what it comes down to is how long you blend. So some of the blenders that might be less expensive don't create particle sizes that are quite as small as maybe a higher powered, more expensive industrial blender. So that leads us to say, if you do not have an industrial blender, that you might need to blend the feed for three to six minutes, which if you've ever turned on a blender for three to six minutes, it's it feels like a very long time. But there are some different options and how to modify recipes based on the blender that you have. In terms of other equipment, it's really the same equipment that we use for enteral feeding in general. So syringes, 
using large bore gravity bags versus small bore gravity bags just to help with the flow, using some of the newer reusable food pouches that can be used for um, enteral administration. And then if someone has a low profile tube, we recommend that they use the straight bolus connector instead of the right angle one, just to again, decrease clogging risk or make it easier to administer the feedings. You kind of alluded to safety earlier, Lisa, but can you go ahead and review some of those safety guidelines about blenderized tube feeding? I'm thinking specifically around preparation, storage, hang time, cleaning, reusing the bags, et cetera. Yeah. So this is, I think, a little bit of a confusing area because we have our safe enteral practices that really talk about formula safety. And what we really focused on in these recommendations was food safety using the USDA guidelines regarding, you know, keeping hot foods hot and cold foods cold and separating cooked foods from raw foods, making sure that all of our cleaning tools are cleaned appropriately, including the blender. And actually a lot of people don't know this, but most blenders actually include recommendations for cleaning and sanitizing in the manufacturer guidelines. But if they don't include that, there are um, guidelines online that you can use, and we've referenced them in this paper, of how to sanitize a blender correctly so you're not getting cross-contamination from one blend to the next. Another thing to think about when you're making your own formula at home is storage. So again, using the USDA guidelines for freezing and refrigerating leftovers. For example, leftovers can be at the, in the refrigerator for three to four days versus normally we're used to saying that formula should be discarded after 24 hours. Um, so that's a little bit of a difference when you're making your home blenderized feeding. And then really the bags can be reused. They should be rinsed and then stored in the refrigerator in an airtight bag for use only within that 24 hour period, which is normally the recommendation to discard the bag after 24 hours. We've been focusing on blenderized two feedings at home. What about in the hospital? Are facilities required to give the patient the same formula they use at home? Or can patients bring in their home formula? Or, or what are some of the safety issues that we should think about in a hospital or in other setting? Well, I think the first thing to think about in a hospital is a hospital really is going to have to create their own guidelines as to what they're comfortable with and what resources they have available. You know, for example, we have a huge kitchen, a huge tray service and a very well-staffed food service. So we have the ability to blend individual recipes, but not every hospital might not have that. So I don't think that we wanted to say in the recommendations, affirm this is what you have to do. But some things that we did definitely want to bring about is that the use of blenderized tube feeding in patients on the floor is perfectly fine. It's actually safe in immunocompromised patients as long as we're adhering to proper food safety practices and proper hang times, just like we do for trace service for our immunocompromised patients. But that patients who are not stable in the ICU might not be a good candidate for blenderized feeding. And the way I explain it is, you know, we wouldn't send a big salad and a pizza on a tray to a patient who is hemodynamically unstable in the ICU. So we probably shouldn't be blending up 
kale and sweet potatoes and blueberries and chicken and sending that to them for administration as well. So that is, um, those are some of the things that we've referenced um, regards to hospital use. One of the things I think that's a biggest barrier to hospital use for many hospitals is the time it takes to administer the feedings. So most hospitals are used to using a feeding pump where the nurses can come in and kind of set it and forget it, so to speak. And most home prepared or hospital prepared blenderized feeding is probably going to be needing to be administered with a syringe or a gravity bag. And that takes quite a bit more time that some hospitals might not be able to provide. And that's where some of these commercial blenderized options might come into a good backup plan for a hospital that, you know, some of these can be on a pump for eight to 12 hours safely. And that, that might be a more realistic option for some hospitals. Those are really helpful tips, Lisa. Kind of as we wrap up today and before we close, are there any additional comments that you want to share with our listeners? I think maybe the first thing I would say is when you look at the recommendation document, you might initially feel like, wow, this is very daunting because it has a lot of information about it. But the table at the beginning is very helpful in summarizing the recommendations. And I really do anticipate that there will likely be some follow-up documents, maybe one page kind of tips and tricks kind of sheets that might come out of this clinical recommendations. But what I would say is if you are nervous as a clinician about using blenderized feeding or assisting patients, you know, look at these recommendations and reach out to any of the authors, because if we are not available to help our patients, they're going to find somebody else who is, and that person might not be as knowledgeable in all of the safety aspects and the things that we need to keep in mind from a micronutrient standpoint. So who better to do that than dietitians or other nutrition support professionals? Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I do want to thank you and all the other authors because it's clear that you put a lot of time and thought and effort into developing this paper uh, for clinicians to use. So I invite our listeners to learn more about this topic and read some other papers and the December 2023 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. And thank you, Lisa, for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. 